Welcome to Quantum Magazine Science Podcast. Come for the science, stay for the stories. For news, interviews, videos, graphics, and more, visit quantummagazine.org. This week on the podcast, a Ukrainian mathematician has solved the centuries-old sphere packing problem in dimensions 8 and 24. Then, in our second segment, scientists have created a synthetic organism that only possesses the genes it needs to survive, but they have no idea what roughly a third of those genes do. First, reporter Erica Klarish talked with mathematicians about an exciting new proof in her piece, Sphere Packing Solved in Higher Dimensions. Marina Vyazovska, a Ukrainian mathematician, has solved two high-dimensional versions of the centuries-old sphere packing problem. In dimensions 8 and 24, she has proven that two highly symmetrical arrangements pack spheres together in the densest possible way. In 1611, Johannes Kepler theorized that the densest way to pack together equal-sized spheres in space is like the way oranges get stacked into a pyramid at the grocery store. Yet this seemingly simple conjecture wasn't proven until 1998. Thomas Hales, now at the University of Pittsburgh, did it using 250 pages of mathematical arguments and enormous computer calculations. A high-dimensional sphere is the set of points in high-dimensional space that are a fixed distance away from a center point. And while higher-dimensional sphere packings are hard to visualize, they are highly practical objects. Dense sphere packings are closely related to the error-correcting codes used to send signals through noisy channels, such as the ones used for cell phones, space probes, and the internet. Finding the best packings of equal-sized spheres in a high-dimensional space should be even more complicated than the three-dimensional case Hale solved. Each added dimension means more possible packings to consider. Yet, mathematicians have long known that two dimensions are special. In dimensions 8 and 24, there are symmetric sphere packings called E8 and the leech lattice. In each of their respective dimensions, these methods pack spheres better than the best candidates known to mathematicians in other dimensions. It's sort of a miracle. Henry Cohn is a mathematician at Microsoft Research New England in Massachusetts. I don't have a sort of simple gut-level explanation of, you know, what it is about 8 and 24 dimensions that somehow everything just fits perfectly together. For reasons that mathematicians don't fully understand, E8 and the Leech Lattice have connections to a wide range of mathematical subjects. These subjects include number theory, combinatorics, hyperbolic geometry, and even string theory. Cohn said they form a nexus. Something wonderful is happening, and I'd like to understand what it is. Mathematicians have collected compelling numerical evidence that E8 and the leech lattice are the best sphere packings in their respective dimensions. But until now, that evidence came just short of a proof. Researchers have known for more than a decade that the missing ingredient was an auxiliary function that could calculate the largest allowable sphere density, but they couldn't find the right function. Vyazovska of the Berlin Mathematical School came up with the missing function in Dimension 8. She posted her solution online a few weeks ago. Her work uses the theory of modular forms. 
Modular forms are powerful mathematical functions that seem to unlock huge amounts of information when they can be used to solve a problem. In this case, finding the right modular form allowed Vyazovska to prove in only 23 pages that E8 is the best eight-dimensional packing. Stunning. It's stunningly simple as all great things are. Peter Sarnak is a mathematician at Princeton and the Institute for Advanced Study. You just start reading the paper, you know this is correct, and she explains very quickly what her new ideas are. Within a week, Vyazovska, Kohn, and three other mathematicians successfully extended her method to cover the leech lattice too. This solution is something mathematicians have been waiting for for a very long time, Hale said. And I've been hoping for this result for at least 15 years now. It's possible to build an analog of the pyramid of oranges in every dimension, but as the dimensions get higher, the gaps between the high-dimensional oranges grow. By dimension 8, these gaps are large enough to hold new oranges, and in dimension 8 only, the added oranges lock tightly into place. The resulting eight-dimensional sphere packing, known as E8, has a much more uniform structure than its two-stage construction might suggest. Henry Cohn, again. And part of the mystery here is this object turns out to be vastly more beautiful and symmetrical than it sounds. It turns out that when you fill the holes in, it becomes enormously more symmetrical, that you're sort of completing it in a way that's much more symmetrical than the construction deserves. And so suddenly everything sort of fits perfectly. There are tons of extra symmetries. It turns out to be a really wonderful object. The leech lattice is also constructed by adding spheres to a less dense packing. And it was discovered almost as an afterthought. In the 1960s, the British mathematician John Leach was studying a 24-dimensional packing that can be constructed from the Golay code. The Golay code is an error-correcting code that was later used to transmit the Voyager probe's historic photos of Jupiter and Saturn. Shortly after Leach's article about this 24-dimensional packing went to press, he noticed there was room to fit additional spheres into the holes. Doing so would double the packing density. In the resulting leech lattice, each sphere is surrounded by 196,560 other spheres. It's such a unique arrangement that Princeton mathematician John Conway discovered three entirely new types of symmetry by studying the lattice's structure. Gil Kalai, a mathematician at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem, said the leech lattice is one of the most exciting objects in mathematics. In 2003, Cohn and Harvard's Noam Elkies developed a way to estimate just how well E8 and the leech lattice perform compared to other sphere packings in their respective dimensions. In every dimension they showed, there is an infinite sequence of auxiliary functions. These functions can be used to compute upper limits on how dense sphere packings are allowed to be in that dimension. In most dimensions, the best-known sphere packings didn't even come close to the density limits this method generated. But Cohn and Elkies found that in dimensions 8 and 24, the best packings E8 and the leech lattice seemed to practically bump their heads against the ceiling. Cohn and Abhinav Kumar of Stony Brook University carried out extensive numerical calculations on the sequences of auxiliary functions, and they found that the best possible sphere packings in dimensions 8 and 24 could be at most 10 to the negative 30th percent denser than E8 and the leech lattice.
Given this ridiculously close estimate, it seemed clear that E8 and the leech lattice must be the best sphere packings in their respective dimensions. Cone and Elke suspected that for both 8 and 24 dimensions, there should be an auxiliary function that would give an answer that matched the density of E8 and the leech lattice. Elke said they gave many talks and even hosted a conference or two in the hope that someone knew of such a function or could easily find one in the right mathematical field. I sort of felt for years that that this function should exist. Thomas Hales again. But I had no idea how to find it, and I felt that it would take a Ramanujan to find it. And uh, here she's pulled a Ramanujan. Srinivasa Ramanujan was a 20th century mathematician famous for pulling deep mathematical ideas out of thin air. Now, Vyazovska has found the elusive auxiliary functions for E8 and the leech lattice, and she used a type of mathematical object that Ramanujan also studied extensively, modular forms. Modular forms are functions that possess special symmetries, like those in M.C. Escher's circular tilings of angels and devils. These functions possess a startling power to illuminate different areas of mathematics. For instance, they were instrumental in the 1994 proof of Fermat's Last Theorem. And although modular forms have been studied for centuries, mathematicians are still unlocking the deep secrets hidden inside their coefficients. Sarnak calls them a goldmine. He's waiting for someone to one day write a paper called The Unreasonable Effectiveness of Modular Forms. But, Cohn said, there's only a limited supply of modular forms. They're also highly constrained objects. And so if you can find such a thing, it's wonderful. It's got tons of great properties. Uh, On the other hand, it's the sort of thing where you can't just write down a modular form that does whatever you want uh, in the sense that there's only a limited supply of them. They come in various different sorts depending on which groups they transform under. So it's a matter of whether one actually exists that does what you need it to. Vyazovska's 2013 doctoral dissertation was on modular forms. She also has expertise in discrete optimization, one of the fields central to the sphere packing problem. So when, three years ago, Vyazovska's friend Andriy Bondarenko of the Norwegian University of Science and Technology suggested that they work together on the eight-dimensional sphere packing problem, Vyazovska agreed. They worked on the problem off and on along with Danilo Radchenko of the Max Planck Institute for Mathematics in Germany. Eventually, Bodarenko and Radchenko moved on to other problems, but Vyazovska pressed on. She felt like it's her problem, she said. After two years of intense effort, she succeeded in coming up with the right auxiliary function for E8 and proving that it is correct. It's difficult, she said, to explain how she knew just which modular form to use. I had some maybe philosophical reason why I should look for it in this form, and maybe this is something what I'm writing a paper about right now, try maybe trying to so to explain where the solution actually came from, because probably like to explain why this function should be in this form is like a whole new mathematical story behind. After Vyazovska posted her paper on March 14th, she was surprised by the amount of excitement it created among sphere-packing researchers. She said she thought people would be interested but didn't know there would be that much attention. 
That night, Cohn emailed to congratulate her, and as the two exchanged emails, he asked if it might be possible to extend her method to the leech lattice. The two of them threw together a collaboration with Kumar, Radchenko, and Stephen Miller of Rutgers University, and with the benefit of Vyazovska's earlier work, they quickly found a way to construct the right auxiliary function for the leech lattice. The team posted its 12-page paper online about two weeks ago. The new results don't have practical implications for error-correcting codes. Knowing that E8 and the leech lattice were close to perfect was already enough for all real-world applications, but the two proofs offer mathematicians a sense of closure and a powerful new tool. A natural next question, Cohn said, is whether these methods can be adapted to show that E8 and the leech lattice have universal optimality. This would mean that they provide not just the best sphere packings, but also the lowest energy ones. If, for example, the centers of the spheres are regarded as electrons repelling one another. Stanford University's Akshay Van Katesh said Vyazovska's new approach may lead to many more discoveries because it is connected to so many areas of mathematics and physics. He said that it seems much more likely than not that this function is also part of some richer story. In our second segment, reporter Emily Singer talks about the development of a minimal cell in her piece, In Newly Created Life Form, A Major Mystery. Peel away the layers of a house, the plastered walls, the slate roof, the hardwood floors, and you're left with a frame, the skeletal form that makes up the core of any structure. Can we do the same with life? Can scientists pare down the layers of complexity to reveal the essence of life, the foundation on which biology is built? That's what Craig Benter and his collaborators have attempted to do in a new study published last week in the journal Science. Venter's team whittled down the genome of Mycoplasma mycotes, a bacterium that lives in cattle, to reveal a bare-bone set of genetic instructions capable of making life. The result is a tiny organism named SYN 3.0 that contains just 473 genes. By comparison, E. coli has about 4,000 to 5,000 genes, and humans have roughly 20,000. Yet, within those 473 genes lies a gaping hole. Scientists don't know what roughly a third of them do. SYN 3.0 has revealed how much we have left to learn about the very basics of biology. Jack Shostak, a biochemist at Harvard not involved in the study, said the most interesting thing about this discovery is what it tells us about what we don't know. Shostak added that many genes of unknown functions seem to be essential. Vender was totally surprised and shocked. He's a biologist most famous for his role in mapping the human genome. The researchers had expected some number of unknown genes in the mix, perhaps totaling 5 to 10 percent of the genome, but Venter said their result was a truly stunning number. The seed for Venter's quest was planted in 1995 when his team deciphered the genome of Mycoplasma genitalium, a microbe that lives in the human urinary tract. When Venter's researchers started to work on this new project, they chose M. genitalium because it has just 517 genes, one of the smallest known genomes in a self-replicating organism. M. genitalium's small genome raised the question, what is the smallest number of genes a cell could possess? Venter wanted to know the basic gene components of life. 
It seemed like a great idea 20 years ago, he said, but they had no idea it would take 20 years to get to this point. Venter and his collaborators originally set out to design a stripped-down genome based on what scientists knew about biology. They would start with genes involved in the most critical processes of the cell, such as copying and translating DNA, and build from there. But before they could create this streamlined version of life, the researchers had to figure out how to design and build genomes from scratch. Rather than editing DNA in a living organism, as most researchers did, they wanted to exert greater control, to plan their genome on a computer, and then synthesize the DNA in test tubes. In 2008, Venter and his collaborator, Hamilton Smith, created the first synthetic bacterial genome by building a modified version of N. genitalium's DNA. Then, in 2010, they made the first self-replicating synthetic organism. They manufactured a version of M. mycotes genome and transplanted it into a different mycoplasma species. The synthetic genome took over the cell, replacing the native operating system with a human-made version. The synthetic M. mycotes genome was mostly identical to the natural version, save for a few genetic watermarks. Researchers added their names and a few famous quotes, including a slightly garbled version of Richard Feynman's assertion, What I cannot create, I do not understand. With the right tools in hand, the researchers designed a set of genetic blueprints for their minimal cell and then tried to build them. Yet, not one design worked, Venter said. He wondered, does modern science even have enough knowledge of basic biological principles to build a cell? Venter said the answer was a resounding no. So the team took a different and more labor-intensive approach, trial and error. They disrupted M. mycotes genes, determining which were essential for the bacteria to survive. They erased unnecessary genes to create SYN 3.0, which has a smaller genome than any independently replicating organism discovered on Earth to date. What's left after trimming the genetic fat? Most of the genes left over are involved in one of three functions, producing RNA and proteins, preserving the accuracy of genetic information, or creating the cell membrane. Genes for editing DNA were mostly expendable. But it is unclear what the remaining 149 genes do. Scientists can broadly classify 70 of them based on the gene structure, but the researchers don't yet understand what roles the genes play. The function of 79 genes is a complete mystery. Venter said they don't know what these genes provide or why they're essential for life. They may be doing something subtle, something not yet appreciated in biology. He said it was a very humbling set of experiments. Venter envisions SYN 3.0 as a cellular frame that scientists can build on. Researchers can embellish the genome to create new organisms. It could help them to better understand stages of evolution lost to time. In theory, Venter said, they should be able to add genes back to SYN 3.0 to recapitulate key parts of evolution. For example, they might try to create more advanced bacteria, or even to convert the basic frame into different biological classes altogether. They could reduce billions of years of evolution to maybe years or months or weeks, Venter said. He also has plans to use the cells for industrial purposes, designing cells that can produce pharmaceuticals or other chemicals. They already have one cell in production to make omega-3s more efficiently than isolating it from fish. 
One of the challenges in synthetic biology, the quest to engineer cells for specific purposes, has been that living organisms behave unpredictably. Theoretically, a minimal cell would provide an engineering advantage because it has fewer unpredictable components. It's not yet clear whether this will prove true. Most efforts in synthetic biology use existing microbes, such as E. coli, and scientists may not yet see a good reason to switch. Venter's team is eager to figure out what the mystery genes do, but the challenge is multiplied by the fact that these genes don't resemble any other known genes. One way to investigate their function is to engineer versions of the cell in which each of these genes can be turned on and off. When they're off, Shostak said, you ask, what's the first thing to get messed up? He said you can try to pin it to a general class, like metabolism or DNA replication. Venter is careful to avoid calling SYN 3.0 a universal minimal cell. If he had done the same set of experiments with a different microbe, he points out, he would have ended up with a different set of genes. In fact, there's no single set of genes that all living things need in order to exist. Scientists first began searching for such a thing 20 years ago. They hoped that simply comparing the genome sequences from a bunch of different species would reveal an essential core shared by all species. But as the number of genome sequences grew, that essential core disappeared. In 2010, David Ussery, a biologist at Oak Ridge National Laboratory in Tennessee, compared 1,000 genomes. They found that not a single gene is shared across all of life. Shostak explained that there are different ways to have a core set of instructions. What's essential in biology depends largely on an organism's environment. Imagine a microbe that lives in the presence of a toxin, such as an antibiotic. A gene that can break down the toxin would be essential for a microbe in that environment, but remove the toxin and that gene is no longer essential. Venter's minimal cell is a product not just of its environment, but of the entirety of the history of life on Earth. Sometime in biology's four-billion-year record, cells much simpler than this one must have existed. We didn't go from nothing to a cell with 400 genes, Shostak said. He's trying to make more basic life forms representative of these earlier stages of evolution. Some scientists say that the bottom-up approach is necessary in order to truly understand life's essence. Anthony Forrester, a biologist at Uppsala University in Sweden, said in order to understand even the simplest living organism, we need to be able to design and synthesize one from scratch. But for now, he added, we're still far from that goal. You're listening to Quantum Magazine's science podcast with music by Poddington Bear. I'm Karen Chikurji. For news, interviews, graphics, and more, visit quantummagazine.org.